wonder what your relationship with your in-laws is like. Uh-oh. I, I, guess, I guess there are different types of relationships with the in-laws, isn't there? You, you have those relationships where it's really, really good. And you can spend a lot of time together, and it's just okay. I mean, it's fine. You, you, you seem to be on the same page in everything that you do. It's great. And, and then there are those relationships with the in-laws where it's, it's probably just you tolerating them. I mean, you get on okay with them. I mean, you love them, but... You're just so different, and you don't really see eye to eye all the time. But of course, then there are those relationships with the in-laws that are like, you feel like you're in eggshells the whole time, and you don't really know what to say, and you always feel like you're being watched like a hawk. I don't know what your relationship with your in-laws might be like. Now, now for me, I get to see my in-laws this week. We as a family, we're going on our summer family holiday together to just south of Seattle, Washington, where my wife is from. So she's, she's from the sticks, a little town called Rainier. And we're going to spend some time with our family for three weeks. And, it, and it's great for Quince because she has given up so much to come and live here and be amongst the BRBC people. Namely, she's not close to her family. So these times are so, so special and we love them, which is why we take such a big chunk. And and it's good for our kids as well to spend time with their grandparents and the broader families, the uncles, the aunts, and the millions of cousins. It's really good for them. But for me, it's a time with my in-laws. Now, my in-law family is absolutely enormous. Now, Quincy, there's Quincy's mum and dad, brother and sister. But Quincy's dad alone has 38 first cousins, and they're all really close. So, so, So this isn't just some small family unit. It's a clan. It's the Miller clan. And what's amazing about these people is that they, they all exhibit similar family traits. They're all ultra-friendly. They're in your face with hugs and kisses. They are so open. And something that they're known for is that they are just not bound by what other people think of them. They, 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 they really don't care. And so they live these very kind of free-spirited lives. Now, this was a massive shock for me when I first met them. See, see, I showed up thinking, right, I know there's a million of them. I've got to say hello to something. I'm going to be, going to be quite formal. I'm going to shake their, their hand and say, hello, my name's James. How do you do? I come from a long way away from here. And I thought it'd just be just very kind of British, but it just blew me away when I showed up. Quincy's dad, I've never seen him before. He threw his arms around me and kissed me on both cheeks. And then there was a cousin, he kissed me too. And then I turn up to the house and there's loads of people there over the next few days. And, hey, Jimmy! And I'm like, I have never met you before. Nobody calls me Jimmy, but now I'm called Jimmy all of a sudden. And, and, and they're, they're hugging me, they're kissing me, they're in my face. And I love the family traits of the Miller clan. It means, because they're, they're so friendly, they're so free from what people think of them. It, it makes sitting, sitting around the fire together outside cooking marshmallows, that is, it's just so lovely with them, because we're just being very, very real and friendly with each other. It makes real conversations about real things in life and stuff that matters. It makes those conversations really, really easy. And so for me, yes, I'm seeing my in-laws, but it really is a holiday with some great people. They are known for being friendly and open. That's their family traits. Now, I want you to think about your family for a second. What would be some of your family traits? What, what would people from the outside look in and say about your little family? How about when you were growing up? What was your family known for? 
Maybe you were the type of family who was known for being friendly and open and hospitable. Maybe you were a family that was known for just getting things done. Maybe you were a family that was known for being all about sport. Maybe you were a family who was known for being creative and musical and artistic. Maybe you were a family who was known for being committed and reliable. Maybe you were a family that was known for being open and not bound by the rules of normal etiquette. I don't know. But the thing is, families are always distinctive. Families have traits. Families have characteristics that make them different from other families. And if they didn't have traits that made them different, they would all be the same. Now the thing is, John wants to talk about the family of God this morning. He wants to talk about the children of God. And what he wants to talk about is the family traits of the children of God. He's going to say very, very clearly throughout this passage, you are God's children. He's going to say it like this, you are born of him, you are of him. And he's going to say over and over again, you're his family. So let me show you, he says, some of the traits of those children of God who belong to his family. So our big question this morning is this, well, what are these traits? If we are in God's family... If we do belong to Jesus and we are his kids, we're his sons and daughters. What are some of the family traits of those of us who belong to this family? Now, I wonder if I say that when I'm talking about the family of God, there might be slight reservations in your heart and mind. Maybe you just kind of think to yourself, oh, I've heard this before. I know I'm a child of God, but sometimes I don't feel it. I know I'm a child of God. I've been told a hundred times I'm a son or a daughter of the Lord. He's my father. I I get it. But sometimes the way I think doesn't really show that. Sometimes the way I speak doesn't show that. And if you take a look at my life, well, am I really a child of God? Am I really living out these family traits? And what's really, really cool about this passage is that it's full of encouragement. There's going to be times where it feels like John is pushing a little bit hard. Yes, he is pushing. But he's wanting to provide assurance. He's wanting to kind of massage those weary hearts and minds to say, this is what it means to be a child of God. This is what it means to be part of the family. So John is pouring on buckets of encouragement for those of us who are feeling like, I know I'm a child of God, but how do I do this? I don't really know how I'm doing. Which direction do I go with this? John's going to encourage us in that direction. So when you grab your Bibles, we're in 1 John this morning. I know some of you have already got it open. You can grab these black hardback Bibles on the ends of the pews. It's going to be page 1,228. You can get it open on your phones. If you've got your Bible with you, have that open too. So 1 John, we're kicking off in chapter 2 and verse 28. We're reading down to uh, verse 10 of chapter 3. That's where we're going to be. So I'll give you a moment or two to open that. 1 John chapter 2 verse 28 down to uh, verse 10 of chapter 3. Let me read this, so follow along with me. Listen out to some of this family language that John is using. And now, little children, he writes, abide in him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. 
See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, since sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident those who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, very often, as we've been studying 1 John, we've made the case or made the point or the observation, it's important to know John's style of writing. So in, in, in order to understand what he's saying... We've said before, other writers write in a linear fashion, so it's kind of more like an equation. John writes in a way where there are various threads that seem to move in and out of his discussion. I mean, it happens across the letter. At one point, he can say, love your brother, leave that, shelve that for a bit. A few verses, chapters later, love your brother again, shelve it a bit, love your brother. Oh, uh, don't carry on sinning, shelve that. And then later on, the thread appears again. That's kind of the way John is writing. I, I, guess I, I had a conversation recently with a, a local farmer who I'm, I'd vaguely known while growing up. I'd gone on a walk, and I had bumped into him. Now, he has the thickest Suffolk accent possible. And, and you know, you, you get people who exhibit a, a pretty strong Suffolk accent, so it's kind of like, a, are you right there, boy? But, but you can comprehend that. That's all right, you can get it. I mean, it's very Suffolk, but you get it. And then you get that Suffolk accent, which only belongs to a rare few people. It's probably the last of a very rare breed of people. And usually, farmers who have farmed the land for generations, when they talk, it's like they've got a mouthful of marbles with the Suffolk accent. So it sounds more like a... What on earth are they saying? I grew up around here, and I don't know what they're saying. So I was talking to this farmer and trying to interpret what he was saying and kind of began by talking about the weather. Because the crops are dry, he's missing out on, on uh, the, the, the fullness of the crop that he wanted, so kind of complaining about the weather. And then he kind of jumped to talk about the World Cup and France winning and whether that was okay and England should have won. And then he jumps back into the weather again. Into the way we're talking about the weather, where the rain is coming from, then talking about the Premier League football season starting, and then rounds the conversation off by talking about the weather. So it's not as though the conversation was illogical or not rational. Of course it was logical and rational. But there were these various threads throughout the conversation that just seemed to emerge at various points. That seems to be what's going on in this passage a lot like others. John begins by talking about the hope that we have. 
Then he wants to talk about righteousness. And then on to the Father's love. And then back on to hope again. And then back on to sin and righteousness again for that last big chunk. So it seems that these themes just kind of emerge as he goes through his point. But what's key throughout all of this is to say we're children of God. Here are the family traits. So he provides for us, I think, four family traits. Or at least that's what we're going to lift out this morning. Four family traits of those who belong to God's family. So let's have a look again at verse 28 of chapter 2. And it reads like this. And now, little children, love this, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have, look at that word, confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So John's speaking about this forward-looking hope that the child of God has. What is he saying right there? When he appears, we have confidence. Now, this word confidence is the same word, confidence, that we read in Hebrews chapter 4. So Hebrews chapter 4, it's famous passage, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. That kind of confidence. Now, it's that kind of confidence when we meet Jesus. That's what John is saying. When we meet Jesus, we can have that kind of confidence. Look at this, at his appearing. But why is that? He's saying it's because we abide in Christ. What does that mean? It means remain in Jesus. It means stay in Jesus. It means live closely with Jesus. It means live deeply in Jesus. Know Jesus more and more and more. Then when you get to meet him, you can draw near with confidence. So I do school assemblies every now and again at Ruffham Primary School. And it, it's a good opportunity to share the Lord with all of these kids. And I can, I can read a Bible story, I can, pr- I, I can apply it to their lives, and then I can pray for them at the end of it. And it's a, it's a really great opportunity to build that connection between BRBC and, and the local school. But I, use, I usually get there just a few minutes early, and I kind of sit off to the side and watch all of the different classes file in and come and sit down. Now at Ruffin, there is a whole host of BRBC kids there. And you can tell them a mile off with how they relate with me. So most of the kids will come in and they'll usually treat me like a teacher. So they might not make eye contact or they might look at me and then quickly look away. But the BRBC kids are different. The BRBC kids are just arms all over the place. I'll get the thumbs up or they'll give me a wink or they'll try and reach out for a high five. And I'm trying to get them to keep a lid on it. But they're kind of tingling with excitement. It's James up there. Hi. There's a distinct difference between how these kids relate with me. Why? Because they know me. Because we've been developing a friendship over almost the last three years or so. They're familiar with me. So what's John saying here? Draw near with confidence. Why? Because you're abiding in Christ. You know him. Jump down to verse 2 of chapter 3. He picks up on this whole idea of hope. Again, it's that thread. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him... Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So we are God's children now, but what we will be is not here yet. But when he appears, when we get to meet him, we will be fully and finally there. What's that mean? We will be like him. And we hope for that. But in the meantime, what's he say? We wait for that. And as we wait, we purify ourselves. 
Now, what John is talking about here is this final stage of our salvation. Now, in the Christian life, we know this to be true. That when we come to know Jesus Christ, we recognize we're sinners, we've got it wrong, we've transgressed God's law, we've made a mess of things, and we're not perfect. We're not acceptable. And when we become Christians, we know that. And so we go to the Lord to say sorry. We repent. And we put our trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That's what it means to be a Christian. To say, right, Jesus is the Son of God. He came in the flesh. He died on the cross for my sins. And he rose again from the dead. And now I can have new life. But we know what's true of the Christian life. We can give ourselves fully to that truth and that story. But we know there exists within us a sin nature. We know there is that insidious frustrating, annoying part of us that wants to do the opposite of what God would have us do. We know that's there. It's all too real. And we wish we could do away with it. But the truth of salvation history is that our stories aren't finished yet. That there's going to be this stage for us where God will strip away that sin nature and we will be fully and finally healed. Where the pain that we know, the struggles we face, the hardship, the addiction... The loneliness, the guilt, all of it will be done with. That one day there will be no more tears. There is that final, full hope of salvation that God gives us. That's what John's talking about. One day it's going to be better. One day it's going to be made new. One day we will be restored and so will the planet that we live on. It will be sin free. We wait for that. And it's hard. But John says that's your hope. And that's a hope that purifies us. We all know waiting is hard. We all know as we wait, we can either get frustrated, annoyed, take it into our own hands, or we can grow, or we can be patient, or we can develop, or we can fix our minds. When we do that, we grow in that hope. That's what he means by being purified as we hope. So that's the first family trait we see right here is that we can have a confident hope. As children of God, that's the first family trait, a confident hope. You see, the Christian hope is different. The Christian hope is beyond the bounds of this world. The Christian hope is untouchable. The Christian hope is unshakable. The Christian hope cannot be messed with. The Christian hope isn't going to move. The Christian hope isn't going to be destroyed by other people. We can have this confident hope. Now, most of you know earlier this year, uh, professor and physicist Stephen Hawking died, didn't he? And, and, and it was really interesting because when he died, all of the news channels and newspapers, articles everywhere about his contribution to physics and our understanding of the universe. And I really appreciated reading some of this. I mean, I didn't really understand a lot of it, but I knew it was quite significant. So I I read through some of it and said, well, he worked this out and he worked this out and he believes this. And so it's really interesting reading some of those biographies on the news websites. And the BBC did something like a biography and it was like, oh, I didn't know some of those things about Stephen Hawking. But they, they had this page where they collected some of his most famous quotes. Some of them were really, really helpful to understand what his life work was about. But reading through these quotes, you most certainly got the idea that he believed the world that we live in and us people are the result of one massive cosmic accident. That we are just here 
because some planets smashed together, some atoms somehow arranged themselves, life was formed, uh, uh, sea life was formed, earth, uh, uh, land life was formed, and that we are just a bunch of highly developed monkeys. That's really what he concluded with. And you could see that from some of these quotes. And as I read down, there was language like this, though. It was, well, we need to love things, and we need to find purpose, and we need to have meaning. And one of his most famous ones was, where there is life, there is hope. And I'm thinking to myself, yes, thank you, Professor Hawkins. I love that. You are so right. There needs to be hope. But I'm thinking in my head, hang on a second. If we're just the result of a a coincidence of atoms whacking together in the universe, and somehow we creatures are here as highly developed animals, I'm thinking to myself, how on earth can you speak in terms of meaning? How on earth can you speak in terms of love? How on earth can you speak in terms of purpose? Because if we came from nothing, we're headed to nothing, any kind of love, meaning, or purpose that we have can only ever be an illusion. It's socially constructed and no more than that. I'm thinking to myself, hang on a second, but you're using the words of love, purpose, meaning, and hope. But there is no hope in that worldview. There's nothing beyond the bounds of our existence. There's nothing beyond the bounds of our world. We just are an accident. That's what we are and nothing more. But what is John saying? John's saying you can have hope. Because someone has broken through beyond the bounds of our world into our existence and assumed human flesh. And his name is Jesus. And Jesus Christ takes on human flesh and shows us purpose. He shows us true meaning. He shows us that there is a grounds for right and wrong, that there is a grounds for love, and there is a grounds for meaning. And more than anything, there is a ground for hope. There is more beyond the bounds of our world, and that's what we hope in. And that, that is what John is pointing his readers to. Now, as children of God, we have that hope. No matter how hard it gets, that hope is still there. No matter if we can't see it some days, no matter if our minds and our situation cloud it, it is still there. That's why the Christian has an opportunity to be empowered to live differently as they navigate this world. The Christian is not a person who denies the hardship. The the, the Christian is not a person who slaps on a fake smile and pretends to be okay. That's not Christian life. The Christian admits the hurt. The Christian voices frustration. The Christian engages with their doubt and says, I want to wrestle with this. But the Christian is always able to say, there is more beyond the bounds of this world. There will always be hope, no matter how hard it gets, how bad the day is, how awful the situation is. We know there is more beyond the bounds of this world. That is the family trait that John wants to turn us to first. But he's got more for us. Let's read chapter 1 of verse 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God and so we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Now now think about this. The, The word see is the word behold, which carries this idea of marveling. Standing in awe of, standing in wonder of. So see what kind of love the Father, what does it say, has caused us to earn. See what kind of love the Father has given us in part. No, see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be children of God, and so we are. 
John is hammering this point home, that we are children of God. You know what that means? The love of the Father is ours. That's a transforming truth that we need to hear this morning. The love of the Father is ours. He loves us. Now, this, is, this is true. When, when you came to know Jesus Christ, what happened? Whether you understood it like this or not, you probably didn't because I didn't. The Holy Spirit opens your eyes to the truth of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit unites you to Jesus. This is the way the New Testament talks over and over again. That we're in Christ. We're in him. We're united to him. So, so when we become Christians, we're united with Jesus. What does that mean? Well, that means all that we are, Jesus takes upon himself. And all that he is, is given to us. And what does he give to us? Well, one of the things he gives to us is the very thing that's most precious to him. His relationship with the Father. You see that? When we come to know Jesus, he gives us his very sonship. When we're united to him, we get the sonship of Jesus. That's why the Bible says we're children of God. That's why we're sons and daughters. Jesus' relationship with the Father is given to us. That's why we're reconciled to God. That's why we're reunited with him. So being united with Jesus means, get this, this is crazy, the love that the Father has for the Son is the love that the Father has for you and me. I have to say that again, because we need that. The love that the Father has for the Son is the same love that the Father has for you and me, because we're in Jesus. Now, the second family trait right here is that we can have slides please next one (laughs) we can know the father's love we can know the father's love i was i was in a lecture a few years ago at moody and we were sitting there doing a rather dense course on the theology of john calvin really really loved it kind of opened my mind to his theology gets such a bad rap but i read his work and i was like this is beautiful stuff And as I was reading this, we talked about John Calvin's captivation with the truth that we are children of God and therefore he loves us. And so the professor was just kind of going through the nitty gritty of a theology of adoption of how we belong to God with his children. And there was a bunch of students in there who, fresh out of high school, grown up in evangelical Bible preaching churches, who were just spellbound by this truth. And a lot of them were saying, but but we've grown up in church. We've heard a hundred times that God loves us. How many times have we been told from the front on a Sunday that we are children of God? But here's what they were saying. Why didn't we ever stop to contemplate and receive that truth? There was one young man in particular who was in pieces over this truth. Now, he'd had a pretty rough background. He had every reason to think, in his mind, why someone shouldn't love him. It had been really tough. But he was just an absolute mess, not through hurt, but through joy, because he was realizing that the love of God in his life was going to transform the way he did life so much that the world around him wouldn't know him anymore. And I loved listening to the rationale as, as he spoke through tears in the middle of the class. So it's what you're saying, Professor, is that we are, we are loved by God that much? He loves us like that, that we're united with Jesus? Professor says, yes, yes, it's true. Well, what if it's true? Then what that means is my whole life changes even more. Yes, said the Professor, your life is radically different because you know the love of God. That means, he said, 
I'm accepted by God. I don't need to work hard for the acceptance of everyone else around me. Yes, said the professor. You know what that means? That changes my prayer life. Does that mean I approach God with confidence because I know he loves me and wants me to draw near to him? Yes, said the professor. You're getting it. Does that mean I don't have to be bound by everyone else's words and opinions over my life and I have a new identity? Yes. Through the tears, he was beginning to see that God's love for him transformed the way he lives. John's saying, when you understand God's love, the world doesn't know you. You have an acceptance from the Almighty. You, you, you know him. He loves you. You stand secure in that truth. You're immovable. You're untouchable. He loves you, regardless of what the rest of the world say. If you're in Christ, united with him, Jesus has given you the most precious thing that he has, his relationship with the Father. That's an amazing truth for the child of God to live in. But John gives us more. We don't have tons of time, so let's go through this. Verse 4, 5, and 6. Seems like John pushes a bit more. Verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he... He appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now we stop there and we think for a second, what is John saying? Is John saying then that I'm not a child of God if I ever at one point in my life sin having known Jesus? And we know that's not going to be true. Chapter 1 and verse 8, he said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So we can't walk around with the mentality that says we don't sin after we know Jesus. We do. That's way too true in my life, and I'm sure it's way too true in your life. We know we sin. So what's John saying? Well, I think a clue is in this word lawlessness. Now that word in the Greek, I don't want to show off the Greek too much, but this is going to be important, is anomia. You try and remember that. Anomia. So it's got this a at the beginning, which means without. We do that in the English, don't we? When we say apathy, it means without care. Or without, without pathos, without being moved. So, ah, so without, and then nomia, or nomos, law. So it means without law. So lawlessness is an okay translation. But John isn't referring to someone who rejects what Moses said. And he's not, uh, did I say Paul? I meant John. Not, <laughs> not, not, not talking about someone who rejects what Moses says. And he's not talking about someone who rejects the laws of the land. Every time this word is used in the Bible... And then outside of the Bible in Christian writing, it points to a disposition of character. Lawlessness is somebody who says, I am a law unto myself. Lawlessness really is that that, that kind of disposition or, 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 or way of thinking where someone says, I will define what's true. I will define what's right. I will define my life. I will define my plans. I will define my future. I am the boss of me. I'm in charge of my own little universe. So that's what this word lawless points us to. Lawlessness. At the end of Judges, that famous last verse, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's a good commentary on the word lawlessness. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. I'm in charge of me. I'm in charge of my world. I I define What's what? So John seems to be saying, that's what sin is right there. It's when someone says, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm in charge. It's a rejection of what God says. It's not submitting to God's authority in our lives. 
That's what lawlessness is. So John is saying, right, everyone who makes a practice of sinning, he didn't say everyone who sins but makes a practice of sinning, also practices anomia, lawlessness. I'm in charge. Sin is lawlessness. And you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him, lives deeply in Christ, keeps on sinning in the way he's just talked about. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now think about the context John is writing to. We've said this quite, quite often, but it's key. John is writing to a church that has just split. They're still hurting. The, the, the wounds are still open. It still stings. But a bunch of people have just left the church who have said, right, things you can't see are good and things you can see as evil or bad. And so what they've said is, right, okay, well then Jesus couldn't have been a real man. He must have just seemed like a real man. Well, if that's true, then there is no good news at all. And what these people also had said is, okay then, if material things are bad and we don't need to think about them or be concerned by them, how we use our bodies doesn't matter. So that's what they had done. They'd come into the church and said, right, if material stuff is bad and we don't really need to think about it, then who cares how we live? We'll live however we want. So then they'd hung around on, on Sundays, I'm sure, spent time with the church family, maybe been around for the community groups, maybe been around for collective prayer. But what they had said is if we fill our minds with truth and then let that have no impact on our lives, we're absolutely okay. So what they had done is they'd come in and says. It's completely permissible to sin. But John is saying, no, that's not true. We don't have permission to sin because knowing Jesus has an impact on our lives. So the third trait we see is that the children of God reject permission to sin. It's not children of God never sin again. No, it's not what he's saying. Children of God reject this permission that these people are bringing or have brought into the church. Now we know this to be true in our lives. Being a Christian... Knowing Jesus has material implications for our lives. Knowing Jesus means that our lives look different. That's the point John is making. We pursue lives of holiness. Salvation has legs. Salvation grows roots. Salvation is earthy. We know that's true when we turn to Revelation in the Bible. What's the full and final salvation we're looking forward to? A recreation of all things, a restoration, a renewal. What did Jesus do when he came to walk this earth? He preached the word, but he also healed people. He opened blind eyes. He unstopped deaf ears. The lame could walk and dance again. You see, Jesus bringing salvation had material implications. What's the call of the Christian? Know Jesus so that that, his truth, all that he is, affects everything that we are. So that's John saying to the people, look, you know what that means? That affects your holiness. So reject this idea of a permission to sin. Don't make it tolerable. Don't make it acceptable. Knowing Jesus affects how you live. Now let's look at this last point, verse 7 down to, let's do uh, verse 29 of chapter 2. This is the first time the thread emerges here. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Jump down to verse 7 of chapter 3. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 
No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident that you who are children of God and who are the children of the devil, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So again, John is drawing out this point where these people had come in and said, look, fill your heads with the knowledge of Jesus and then walk out that door with no implication for your life. That's not how it works. He says, you know a child of God because they recognize that knowing Jesus affects how they live. Number one, they reject the permissibility of sin. And secondly, they live lives of righteousness. A child of God pursues righteousness. Now, all through this last few verses here, John is saying, you, you know a child of the devil because they're a law to themselves. And you know a child of God because they recognize that God defines how to live. That knowing him brings implications for our lives. Now, now John isn't saying, you are a child of God and therefore you have it all together and you live a perfect life and you never make a mistake again. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about practicing sin. How many times does he say that? practicing righteousness. And why does he say that? Practice righteous because he is righteous. So key within John's theology, you read it anywhere in the Bible, John wants us to see that we are to pursue living out the nature that is already ours. Actually, this is across the whole New Testament. How does it begin in Colossians chapter 3? You know who you are in Jesus. Since you've been raised with Christ... Put off unrighteousness. Put on righteousness. This is true across the whole Bible. That the Christian progressively seeks more and more as they live out their days on this earth to live out the image of Jesus. Be righteous as he is righteous. So you know the family trait of a child of God is to say, look, my nature is Jesus Christ now. I've been united to him. I'm a child of God. My identity has been flipped on its head. I am new. I don't always feel it. I don't always see it. Sometimes I feel flat and I often get it wrong. But the truth still remains. I am still a child of God. And if that's true, then I'm going to put off sin. And if that's true, I'm going to fight to see this not be permissible in my life. And then what I'm going to aim for with God's help, because Jesus is righteous, is to have his righteousness in and through what I do. I want to see his humility. I want to see his compassion. I want to see his peace. I want to see his gentleness to my kids, to my spouse, to my colleagues, to my neighborhood, to my broader family. That is what I am going to do. Why? Why, though? Because we are children of God. All throughout the Bible you'll see this. It's not, it's not get rid of sin and be righteous and then God will love you. The, the Bible is the opposite to that logic. The Bible says, do you know who you are? Do you know that you're children? Do you know this kind of love that the Father has for you? In light of that, pursue the image of Jesus in everything that you do. You'll get it wrong. We can't say we have no sin. So we run to Jesus when we do. John's just told us to do that in chapter 1. We run to our advocate. But we are children of God, so we seek to see these family traits at play. So what are the family traits John gives us? We have a confident hope. We can know the Father's love. We reject permission to sin, and we pursue a righteous life. Now, I'm, I'm going to go spend three weeks with my in-laws from Wednesday. 
and I can't wait. I am so tired, really, really tired, and I can't wait to just put my feet up and just sit around the bonfire in the evenings and just go over the last year and just catch up with the people that we love so much. And as we're with them, we're going to see those family traits at play, and it's going to be fantastic, and it's going to be freeing, and we'll have real conversations about real life. But these family traits of the Miller clan are so blatant to the rest of the world. I don't want you to ever underestimate. You've got to hear me. Never underestimate these traits. Never underestimate what the world sees. Never underestimate what those in your household absorb from you exhibiting these traits. Never miss how much people in your life, at work, in your neighborhood, your broader family, never miss how these traits can shine through. So John, I think, has poured buckets of encouragement on us today. You are children of God. Do you know how loved you are? Go and live it. Go and live out the image of Jesus because that is your nature. So let's pray and then we get to sing our last song. Lord, we don't always feel like children of God. We don't always act like it. We don't always think like it. We don't even don't always speak like it. But the fact remains, regardless of where we are, the truth is there. We are children of God. We belong to your family. So we pray by your spirit and in Jesus that we would live out these family traits, that we would be known as individuals who belong to an uncommon community by the traits in our lives. Lord, help us to be the kind of people who know that hope, who know your love, who reject sin and pursue righteousness. Help us. We're praying in Jesus' name. Amen.